Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. I am so glad you joined us today. I've so been looking forward to speaking with our guests for quite some time. And, you know, she's opening up my eyes to the world around us, how it's just filled with engineering and our students from a bus they ride to the tablets they tap on to the sharpeners for their pencils, everything they use is engineered. And Ann Kaiser, who's our guest today, is going to talk about how the engineering design process is the perfect vehicle to develop thinking and habits of mind in our students. I want to just tell you a little bit about Ann because she's done so much. I have to kind of narrow it in. She was an engineer for 15 years, and she, I mean, an engineer, and then spent 15 years in secondary education. One of her main goals is to bring young people into tech fields by sharing the possibilities of engineering. She was a Fulbright Distinguished Teacher, and this is fascinating. She spent six months in Singapore working to implement engineering design projects as performance tasks in secondary physics classes. So, wow, how about that for a background? So, Anne, I'm so glad you're here. Tell us a little bit more about your background, how you developed this obvious passion for the E in STEM. Uh, well, first of all, it's great to be here um, and to have a chance to chat with you. I, um, When I started teaching uh, as my sort of midlife career change, I was amazed to see that many of the uh, physics labs uh, had not changed since I was in school. So I naturally just started using more design projects in place of verification labs. That ended up um, really getting my students engaged. And I was able to do the same thing in AP physics. I then, uh, at the request of a very enlightened administrator, was asked to create, in I believe it was 2009, an engineering design course that would be an elective at the high school level. Um, and there wasn't a whole lot out there then, so I opted to frame it around the engineering design process and uh, create projects that I knew would engage the students um, from a variety of different fields. And the course took off. The, the enrollment tripled in a year. Um, most of those students, when I polled them, roughly 70% were planning on attending engineering uh, uh, programs at the university level. I've stayed in touch with a number of them. I would estimate that probably about half that number actually completed their degrees, but it was far more than um, I had anticipated. So, you know, the course is, you know, the idea then uh, was to see, does this work when you're really in an environment that's very test-driven? And that was sort of the impetus behind uh, my Fulbright uh, research. And it kind of all took off from there because of the next generation science standards. I had luckily framed what I was doing around the same disciplinary core ideas and performance expectations that are in the NGSS for engineering design. So it was pretty much a perfect storm, and I had lots of requests for help. Um, so I started my own business about four years ago. Okay, well, that's amazing. And I want to I follow up on something you just said. Um, is of course, we're always worried, worrying in the back of our minds about test scores and testing. And some, and I hate to say it, I, I hope we're not looking at students as testers now. You know what I mean? That worry yeah. that keeps me up at night. 
But one thing you mentioned is how students, so how did students do, Anne, when you did more of this active project-based approach, whatever you want to term it, your, your approach, how did that work out on the other end, on the testing end? Well, you know, the one place that I was really able to attempt to quantify everything was when I had six months to actually be a researcher in Singapore, you know, working with uh, two amazing teachers in depth. Um, the, the, the thing you can't do um, is create causality between those big standardized tests. They take PSLE and O and A-level exams in Singapore, very much like the Cambridge system. So you can't establish causality between how you teach something and how they do on those tests. It's just impossible. There's too many other factors. But we did do some great pre and post uh, testing questions and surveys. The teachers themselves, just from the dialogue with the students, were convinced that the students understood the core concepts involved in things like forces, energy, and work far better than they did with a direct instruction method. So the, that part, you know, that sort of is, that left me with the feeling that yes, this does work. I do know from experience since then in working with teachers who have taken engineering design projects and put them in their classes, they all report that if they use the same test that they used to use in the past, the students do do better on it. Um, so it's, in a way, it's anecdotal evidence. I don't, you know, it's almost impossible. And I, I think most educators would agree that without massive studies proving causality between high stakes testing results and, you know, changes you make in the classroom is a real challenge. Do you not agree that we could draw the relationship between unit tests and our assessments during our classroom that they do better? Because those are the couple yeah. of studies I use in mind. That's right. where we're hearing from, from teachers that, you know, they are absolutely convinced these students are doing much better. Um, and, you know, again, the teachers are trying to change, you know, when they teach differently, they start to realize that they can't assess the same way. So we have teachers who set up, um, they've set up midterm exams and final exams that are based on stations and some of their science classes where students have small tasks to perform at different stations. We've had um, teachers who have on unit tests used more of a, a problem or problem-based scenario because they realize that, you know, the old method of testing is not assessing learning in a new fashion. And, you know, I mean, and that's something we all grapple with. So in the classroom where the teacher has a chance to test differently, most of them are beginning to do so. Unfortunately, we all know that there's, you know, still some big testing out there that has not kept up with teaching differently. And that was a real problem in Singapore. And that's a problem that that teachers struggle with in Singapore. So, um, you know, it, it, the whole thing is is we cannot. And I think it's, you know, as you said, we're not trying to educate test takers um, and we shouldn't be focusing on testing, we should be focusing on learning. And a love of learning, which is what when I'm yes. when I'm looking thinking about stations and science and things, boy, students will just love that. Okay. We've had a student I just really quickly I was in a room with a student with a teacher after one of those and this was a final exam. And 
uh, his student came up to him after the exam and said, I want to thank you. That's the first time I've left a final feeling like I learned something. Wow. Isn't that great? Well, okay. So I've got a little ahead of ourselves. I want to step back a little bit and first have you give us a quick overview of the engineering design process and in some, how do engineers think and how can that help our learners, our teachers, our everybody think differently? Start there for us. Okay, so what we do, and and we do um, a lot of work with teachers, you know, pre-K through 12 in all different disciplines. So our starting point is always that engineering is creative problem solving. I mean, in a nutshell, that's what it is. And, you know, engineers solve problems for human beings. So that brings in a component of empathy, understanding your end user, uh, the engineering design process, you know, you can you can Google it and you can look online and you'll see anything from graphics with five steps to graphics with 13, 14 steps. Um, it it I, I push back again sometimes. Let's not totally, you know, codify it and make it into this all has to be done. There are basically three phases. And we, when we work with teachers, we approach it this way. The three phases are know your problem, know your options, and develop a solution. And you can take all of those more extensive models of the engineering design process and sort of group the steps that way. So when you talk about knowing your problem, it's really uh, coming up with a clear definition you know, for instance, if you were to tell me you can never get to work on time, I can't really start to solve your problem until I, I figure out, well, is it because you're taking very crowded roads or is it because you hit the snooze button 15 times? Um, those are two very different problems. So it's that idea of really doing a little sort of delving into your problem and then we talk about, just as they do in the next generation science standards, we talk about framing your problem with constraints and criteria. Constraints are your limitations, and those constraints are what drive creativity. I mean, if we didn't have to deal with constraints, we wouldn't have to come up with creative solutions. And the criteria are typically what, that's what makes one solution to a problem different from every other solution, because it sort of creates that you know, what would be in a company, the corporate vision. These are the goals for a good solution. So that's sort of, and then you look at your end user, you do a little bit of background research. So now you know what your problem really is that you're trying to solve. The part where you need to know your options, that part involves a lot of divergent thinking. And that's the part that is really challenging, particularly as students get older, because you're so used to that very linear convergent model of school, where there's always just one right answer, and the whole goal is to find that one right answer. So we work a lot with teachers in terms of promoting, you know, we do some creativity exercises, we really get them to think about how do you get students to think divergently, how do you get them to not go directly from problem to solution? Because the heart of engineering is that middle ground where you're exploring all the possible options available to you. And then you go from there, you know, students have to make a decision on the one thing they want to try and prototype so that they have a visualization of their solution, which is all that the prototype is. It gives you a way to explain how you're solving the problem. 
they we work with teachers to help students think about you know how do you test different ideas out different solutions out and then the the other really important part of engineering is that your testing informs your modifications you know how you're going to improve something and you try to optimize it to meet your constraints and criteria so you know then you got to tell the world about what you did so that that is that whole engineering design process but we always group everything as know your problem know your options develop a solution that's wonderful that that reminds me of what entrepreneurs do as well you know i mean when they when they solve yep. problems and technology people it's exactly oh you know we're i'm in the middle of actually putting some things together that talk about how you can use um some of the practices of you know, lean manufacturing, agile, and scrum thinking to really structure projects and some of your practices in the classroom. But, you know, we, I use that same exact model when I created my business. Um, and it fits whenever I meet with, you know, some of the people who have done some work with me in really business development, it, it fits their language totally. So, it, it, you know, it, it works. It's the way we solve problems. So whether you're talking about a technical problem or some other problem, it's still a valid process. I mean, I've had a, I had a student come back. Uh, she was in my class, in my engineering class as a junior in her senior year. And she came back. She said, Mrs. Kajal, look what I did. She had created this whole sort of flow chart of deciding what college to go to based on that process. Oh, I'm, I just, I just, wow, just talking to you, I'm just, I'm just visualizing so much impact in the building, even, and this may be a stretch in restorative discipline of let's, let's look at our problem. Let's look at some options and let's together get some solutions. I can just, I'm just getting my mind around this. Okay. One thing that I'm also hearing is engineers are going to experience some failure. They're going to, some things are not going to work out. And that's a big part of learning too. How, take us through that a little bit and how that can really help our kids. So we, um, and again, that, that, you know, when we work with pre-K to about grade three, that idea of, okay, let's try things. And if they fail, let's figure out why and move forward. That, that's like the way they operate. Um, when you get to fourth, fifth, sixth grade, there starts to be a little bit, okay, show me how to get the right answer. I just need to know what the right answer is. And of course you have peer pressure. Students are afraid to fail. If you are dealing with the academic superstars in an AP class, it is literally like moving a mountain to get them to sort of take a risk and not be afraid to fail. So we work, we work a lot on that um, with teachers and workshops and when we're in the classroom doing some coaching. It's that idea that, you know, I used to have a, a poster on my wall in my classroom that said, make mistakes, just don't make the same mistake twice. In other words, failure is great, but failure is only great if you take the time to learn from it. So we call that failing forward. Um, in engineering, you know, one I've, I've had entire courses as an undergraduate in failure analysis, because that's how you move forward. Um, it's, it's that feedback. Okay. I just got chills on the failing forward. That would be, that would be the name of my autobiography, <laughs> but anyway, fa- <laughs> failing forward. That's fantastic. That's actually going in the book I'm writing. <laughs> well, you know, that's what it is. And, and it, 
it's the idea, you know, we all talk about, okay, we have to encourage our students to, you know, failure is good, failure is good. Well, you know, failure is good to a certain extent, but it's only good if you take the time to figure out what went wrong and move forward. So just saying failure is good is not enough. I mean, it's how we frame the failure too, don't you think? And sometimes in classrooms, we talk about productive struggle and then that's going to look different for each student. So I don't want to mix that. I don't want a students just to fail. You know what I mean? Just, just to learn from that. You know what I mean? But I mean, I think that's, those are great things to talk about. I love that failing forward. I'd never heard of that before, but that's pretty darn cool. Okay. So, well, so what, but what we do is, you know, we structure before students really get in the, the nitty gritty of a project. We use these things. We have a whole series of different things we call quick builds, where it's like you're going to be given this really tight time constraint and very simple materials, and you're going to be given a challenge, and you probably won't have enough time to do it perfectly. So we set it up that it will probably fail, Um, but there's no assessment involved. It's really low risk. It's 15 or 20 minutes. And the teachable moments that come out of that, both in terms of content and in that idea that look at all this that we learned from, if, you know, look at what we learned from all this failure. It, it's, it's, wor- it's like gold. Um, so that's how we sort of introduce students to failure, you know, so that they don't get to the point where they invested a huge amount of time in a big project and it's like a total failure. The other thing is we tell teachers that product at the end of a project is not what matters. It's the process. Because if you make it about the product, students will be afraid to fail. But if it's about the process and the idea that they can sort of modify and debug and move forward, you give them a softer landing for the failure. That quick build, that's pretty interesting. I was trying to think about what that might look like in other content areas as well, you know, in writing or something. So that just opens up a whole nother world for me thinking about that. Okay, I'm going to forget to do this later, so I don't want to forget. So how do people find you? I'm on, I follow you on Twitter, but can you share your website, your, your Twitter and all that a little bit? Okay, so our website is just projectengine.com. It's, it's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-E-N-G-I-N, all one word. Okay. Um, Twitter's the same thing at Project Engine. Okay. At Project, and it's P R O J E C T E G I N, and we'll put that on our notes uh, so that if if you should be if you're driving, don't don't crash into anything. We'll we'll put that on our notes. Please don't <laughs> crash. That's not the kind of failure we're looking for. All right. So one thing I noticed, I thought that was pretty cool. I was reading your website. And on some of the things you do for younger students, and I, I just thought this sounded super cool on fairy tales, children's literature to teach yeah. the engineering design yeah. process. So fill us in a little bit on the, what does that look like? Well, let's think, think about that. The, those three little pigs. I mean, they're civil engineers, <laughs> you know, that's so, funny. So we do a project um, and we do different, different levels depending on the ages of the students. And, you know, we use the word fairy tales on the website because those are, you know, those are, we don't have to worry about getting rights to any of those right off the bat. So some of the curriculum that we write will start with fairy tales, but teachers often, you know, use other books that students typically read. Um, The Three Little Pigs, uh, we've got one project, and I, I actually was in the classroom where we're doing this, that it was a kindergarten classroom and the students were learning shapes and uppercase letters. So we talked about, you know, where do we see those things in structures? We went on a little scavenger hunt. At the really lower grades, the engineering design process is as simple as 
plan, build, test. I mean, you can't make it more complicated than that. And the, the tricky part for kids at that age is really getting them to do a little planning first. So they had to find some shapes and then they made sketches with shapes and letters in their structures. They made little houses and we read about the three little pigs and then they built something that supposedly looked like their sketches, but they're kindergartners. <laughs> and, and then we had a hairdryer with uh, ears on it. Um, and some pipe cleaner whiskers, and that was the wolf. So we huffed and puffed um, to see if we could blow the houses down. And then, you know, they, they had a chance to kind of see if they could fix their houses at that modification stage. Um, but I did watch one one little guy who had a full-time aide with him and really was not good at working with the rest of the class. He made a composite beam, which is sort of advanced engineering, by putting a pipe cleaner inside a straw and he put a bunch of these together and built this, this crazy structure, and it was the one that stood up the best. So the next day, where we were going to try another little activity, he was everybody's hero, and everybody wanted to work with him. So it, this was like, I mean, it was like the kind of thing you stand there in a classroom, you just want to cry. Aww. I mean, it was, it was really pretty cool. Um, Goldilocks is an ergonomics expert, okay. by the way. I mean, you know, she wants to make sure it's just right for her body. So we do a whole little thing about that. And we test out little stools with teddy bears. Um, so it, it's really about um, the idea, particularly in pre-K through about four or five, where teachers may be more self-contained giving them a way to teach some science while they're teaching some litera uh, literature or they're teaching some uh, math or they're teaching, you know, whatever it is they're teaching that they can start to sort of weave these things together. Um, and they're really grateful for that, particularly in states that are NGSS states, because now you have someone saying to you, on top of all the other science you're supposed to be teaching, you now need to use some engineering. So we try and, um, just weave together things are already doing because there is no room right, to do right, right. more stuff. Just, it, that's wonderful. <laughs> Those are fantastic examples. And you mentioned next generation science standards. Uh, what are you seeing when you're out in schools in terms of challenges, successes, any guidance you can give as schools are, are embracing this? Um, I, to be quite honest, I, I don't see it coming to fruition the way that I think everybody hoped in the beginning. Um, I, I see a lot of teachers sort of pull out or their curriculum um, coordinators pull out the, the DCIs and the, the PEs, the disciplinary, disciplinary core ideas and performance expectations and sort of make them look like old standards in a way. I, I, I always say that the idea of three-dimensional learning that backs up the next generation science standards is really, um, I think what you, you know, you really need to be focusing on. And I lead with the cross-cutting concepts because if you have a strong model for what it means to work with energy, that's true in all scientific disciplines all the way through. And it makes it easier to fit things together. Um, there are some places we walk into and they're like doing everything well, but most people are still struggling with, you know, what does this mean? How do we teach science differently? Uh, textbooks, for the most part, 
put a few things in there and called it NGSS compliant. And you have so many science teachers who, for lack of in-depth training, because they've been trained to teach other core disciplines, um, rely on their textbook. Um, so it, it, it is, I think there's a lot of inertia yet. Um, but I do think when it works, it works really well. It, it makes it about doing science, not just learning, you know, like really exploring the questions behind science and not just learning all the answers that we have. So I, I, um, you know, I, I think, you know, most of the teachers that we work with are really trying uh, to implement it well. But I think, you know, there's still that whole vision is not being realized as well as it could. And so you're when you're out in buildings, what's what's your best? How do you get people sort of recharged or next steps if you're seeing that? I mean, what, what do we do there? Well, you know, we we start. Well, first of all, you know, we. <laughs> I don't believe that STEM, I, I kind of hate the acronym, to be honest, <laughs> um, because we run into schools where, uh, okay, STEM is now living in science class. So this poor science teacher, you know, now has another hat on her head. Um, or STEM is somehow now the technology person's in charge of STEM, or we even sometimes there's, you know, a teacher will say, you know, well, we have STEM, we do it, you know, one hour a week. Um, I like to think of let's, let's not create yet another silo. Um, Let's use this idea that if you are engineering something, whether you're engineering your outfit to go to work or you're engineering a new, you know, driverless car, you look at so many different disciplines. So let's think of this as sort of a vehicle for skills-based learning and give students a problem-solving process. And we start, when we start working in the school, we don't even really jump right into, okay, this belongs in your science class or your math class. We tell schools, we want to talk to everyone because this is really about establishing a culture. Um, and even if you have a number of teachers who may not be doing too much of this. It is really helpful for them to understand what the teachers who are really involved in trying to implement some of these ideas, what they're doing and how they might be able to assist them. So we start at that school-wide culture level first, and then we kind of walk teachers through classroom practices to reinforce that. And then we finally get down into curricular projects. Because if you don't have those those layers of culture and practices that support that way of learning, the, the changes in how you approach the curriculum will not stick. I mean, Sage just, advice on that one. Now, I, I want to come back to something because you have something called the inner engineer. How can teachers channel? How can we channel our inner engineer? Well, you know, we always tell teachers, you know what? Look at the the starting point for any engineering challenge is sort of a design space that's framed by constraints and criteria. So, you know, for instance, give your students a simple challenge at the beginning of the year, like, okay, you're all slouching in these desks, your stuff is falling out of them, let's just redesign this desk, what could we do? And then, you know, Find out what's important to them. And then, you know, you put that up against the fact that, well, you know, we can't all in all schools go buy $5,000 desks for every student. That's a constraint. And sort of it, it's not technical. It's simple. Um, but 
we're all capable of solving problems that way. And we just, we, we sort of don't give voice to it. You know, think about a textbook problem. It's all spelled out there. It's a very small world. Um, it, it really doesn't encourage students to sort of think bigger. So, you know, I, we start out our workshops by pointing out exactly what I just said. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you engineer your outfit for the day. You have certain criteria depending on where you're going. You know, hopefully if you're going to school, you're not dressed like you're going to the beach. Um, and, you know, your constraints are what's in your closet. Um, nobody goes shopping at 6 a.m. So you put together what works. Some days you put on what you think is going to work and it's like, oh, this isn't happening for me. So you go through a modification phase and you try other options until you have your optimal outfit. So you sort of, you know, you've just engineered before you even left the door. So it, it is, um, it doesn't have to be the super technical thing. We always introduce engineering to teachers using a very non-technical product that we take them through a small mini design uh, process for. And then we start talking to them about, um, okay, let's look at some big global issues and have your students look at how do we engineer solutions to some of those challenges. Um, but you don't start out super technical to begin with. And I want to tell everybody too, that Anne has graciously shared uh, an engineering design process for your classrooms on her website and a couple other wonderful items on my Ed expert. And she's also got great things on her site and we'll put a link to her site as well. And your workshops, I looked at them, they look like so much fun. I would love to go to, go to some of those. And I know Anne and I, we were talking, trying to coordinate when we could kind of see each other. Cause I'd love to engage. I would love to go to some of those. I want to, I want to summarize some of my key points Anne, and if you'll chime in, I, I just love the way you explain this in these three Eric, key components that I can understand, the, the problem solving, identifying the problem, what are our options, and finding solutions. And I'm absolutely in love with this approach of using with little children, three little pigs, civil engineers, that's hilarious, by the way, uh, and literature to just just introduce this so we get get our minds around this. The, the, the whole concept of it being about the process, that the, that the process is what we're out after. And those quick builds, I just know I could use those in other classrooms as well in other content uh, where they, and you know, I hate that AP students and things like that. They're always about that right answer. I'm always looking for solutions on that. You know, how we can, can move them past mm -hmm. the right answer situation that I don't know how we get there, but we're there. Tell me some things you would like to really, some key points to leave our listeners with today. Well, you know, I, I think the key point is, and it, it, it comes from the feedback that we get, is, you know, the high school teachers, the more we work with them, they tell us we have to work with the middle school teachers. And the middle school teachers tell us we have to work with the teachers in primary grades. But, it, you know, we need to remember that the best engineers are those really little guys that come into our classrooms when they're five or six. Um, they have engineered their background knowledge of the world without our help. Um, they have managed to learn to walk and talk and all that stuff. Um, and they're not afraid to fail. So it's really a matter of keeping that going. You know, it's there to begin with. We tend to, with the, the traditional model of education, we shut that down. So it, it's really about, you know, in my mind, it's about engaging students, letting them have fun, letting them see that you know, the world around them 
everything that's come into being in the world around them was was to solve a problem. I mean, the, the pencil got made because we needed a way to get our thoughts down on paper. I, and and so it really brings the creative kids to the mix. And, you know, frankly, we do need more students going into STEM fields, but most studies identify that what we really need are students who can think innovatively, who are creative. So we need to engage all of those students. Um, I'm in the middle of hopefully this book will be out in the spring of, of writing a book for Solution Tree Press about how you do a little bit of all this in K through 12. Um, and really with some project and activity ideas for teachers. And it really is, it's that first step. You know, you, you take that first step, you do a simple little thing like the quick bills I was mentioning, the students ask for more, they start talking about it in the hallways, other teachers put their heads in your door and want to know, hey, what's going on in here? How come your students are getting here early? Um, and it spreads. So, it, you know, it's not about throwing out everything we have. We can't do that. That's not realistic. It's about, we talk about it being evolution, not revolution. Well, that's a great way to end this. And uh, Anne and I don't want to say goodbye to anybody without thanking every educator out there for all you do every day. It is, uh, we both are lifelong teachers. It's, it's, uh, we just, it's, you're the most important thing in the world and the doors you open for your kids, the possibilities you bring in every day. We just want to make sure that you're, you feel appreciated today. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Susie. It was fun. It's always fun to, to like share these ideas. All right, guys. Well, listen, every Wednesday, we try to get a new podcast out with a thought, educational thought leader like Ann Kaiser. Thanks so much, guys. We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our author's work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert. 